You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. I can't wait until uh, we can meet again live and uh, in person. So much looking forward to that. But the thing that's exciting me more than that is the fact that Ross Kearney is coming to be our pastor. That's an exciting answer to prayer. He is a wonderful young man. Uh, Leanne is a lovely, lovely young lady. They are a beautiful family. And uh, I know that he will be an amazing pastor, teacher, shepherd, leader to this congregation in the years to come. But as I was thinking about this this week and thinking about the announcement that Dave was going to make, I thought to myself, what kind of a church are Ross and Leanne coming to? What kind of a church are we going to be when they arrive? Who will we be as a congregation when COVID is finally over and the dust is settled and we get to convene again and come back together again? Who are we going to be? Well, here's a truth that I know personally to be true because it's been my experience, that no pastor, no leader, no shepherd, no teacher, no no man can make a church great. A pastor doesn't make a church great. What makes a church great is when the people of that particular congregation decide together to live under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what makes a church great. The commitment to become a church that impacts culture and brings glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ is a church that is filled with people who have bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and live under his sovereign control, being what God wants us to be. As we begin this morning, I want to point out to you a couple of things that, from the passage that Dave read to us. The first is that in verse 8, we are told to walk as children of light. And then in verse 15, it says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Our responsibility as Christians, as the redeemed people of God, is to walk as children of light, not as unwise, but as wise. See, later on in in the same section says, don't be foolish. We are called to be wise. Light and wisdom is what is to reflect from us to our world. So Paul has just taken time to speak about, and we've taken the last two weeks to work through these things that we are to put off in order that we are to put on the character and the likeness of Christ. So two weeks ago, Brett spoke to us about putting on honesty, controlling our anger, putting on generosity, working hard with our hands so that we'll have something to share with others as opposed to stealing in order to get what we need. Using words well, putting on an attitude and and a behavior that causes our words to edify and build up and not tear down. Putting on a kind, tender-hearted, forgiving attitude and then last week I spoke about putting on a, a, a radical selflessness, a radical Christ-like love, and a radical sexual purity. So, so it's almost like Paul has said, we're putting these things on 
Now that we have these qualities, now that we're living in this way, let's begin to walk in light and in wisdom. It's almost like you this morning, and and maybe you're still in your pajamas, I don't know, but it's like for me this morning, I got up and I got dressed. I put on my undershirt, I put on my pants, I put on my shirt, I put socks. So when I put everything on, then I put my mask on and I walked out into the hall of the hotel we're staying in. I I started to walk, I started to move, I started to proceed into my day. And it's almost like that Paul is using that as a bit of an analogy here. Put off, put on, get dressed with the Lord Jesus Christ essentially, and then begin to walk this way as children of light, full of wisdom. And the hinge verse in this passage, I think is verse 8, where it says, at one time you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. See, for the Apostle Paul, it's not enough just that we have a moral, ethical transformation. For Paul, it's not enough just that we are born again to newness of life. For Paul, it's not enough just that we have a change in our behavior, that we are born again, that we become new creatures in Christ. As new creatures in Christ who are born again, he expects us to begin to move in a particular direction, both individually and more importantly, collectively. We are to move into the darkness of our culture with the light of the gospel. We are to move into the confusion and the bewilderment and the foolishness of our world with the wisdom of God. That's who we are to be together. That's what the church is called to be. Dressed in the righteousness and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're to move out into culture as a powerful instrument of transformation and change, bringing the light and the wisdom of God to a dark, profoundly lost and confused culture. That's what we are to do. Scripture does not teach that the ultimate purpose of our salvation is our salvation. And it's critical that we understand that. God didn't save you just to get you to heaven. He saved you so that you would become part of this thing that we call the church, which is to be a transformational power in our world. But many of us act this way. Many of us act as if the only reason that God saved me is he just wanted me in heaven. Today, many Christians are content with putting on this new ethic, this new morality, putting on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, putting on holiness and staying home, living in our cultural ghetto, not moving beyond our small, insular, insulated world out into the culture in which God has called us to penetrate. Over the years, Generation after generation after generation, Christians have developed this pietistic, ingrown, parochial attitude that causes us to create these comfortable Christian ghettos where we live separated from the world, not having any kind of profound impact on our world, and it is wrong. The Lord never intended us to be in a cultural ghetto protecting ourselves from the big bad world out there. He intended us to go and engage the world, to be light and to be wisdom, to bring truth and healing to the brokenness of our world. You know, the early church had an expectation that they were going to change their world, and they did. 
Within three centuries, Rome bowed the knee to the person and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed that they were going to change the world. They believed that they were going to move from victory to victory. We used to sing those kind of songs. From victory unto victory. His army he shall lead till every foe is conquered and Christ is Lord indeed. We need to sing that song, Nate, some Sunday coming up. It's an oldie, but it's a goldie. But the words are so true. We're to go from victory to victory to victory. And the victory is not just putting on righteousness. The victory is not just stopping stealing so that I can have something to share with those in need. The victory is not just embracing a radical sexual purity. That's important. But we embrace this culture, we embrace these behaviors so that we can be light and wisdom. So that we can be transformational. So that we can be, as Paul says here, expose the darkness. So that we can, as as John says, be the light that penetrates the darkness. Jesus told us, and we need to believe it, that he will build his church and the gates of hell can't stop him. And if we're going to be a church, and if Ross and Leanne are going to come to a church that is going to impact this part of the world for the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ, we've got to accept that that's our mandate. Not to live cut off, isolated from the world around us, but engaging culture, engaging our neighbors with the gospel of Jesus So Paul was able to tell the Romans, and I love this little verse, it's often skipped over. In Romans 16, Paul tells the Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that a magnificent, encouraging word? The God of peace is pretty soon going to crush the serpent, serpent, there's the word I'm looking for. The God of peace is going to crush the serpent under your feet. That's our vision, to crush the serpent through the ministry of the God of peace in our lives as we go forward together in the culture. So in this passage of scripture, I think Paul begins to speak how to advance as a church into a broken, perverse, dark culture. As the first century church did it, so too must we do it. As our culture becomes darker and darker and darker and more confused and bewildered and lost and foolish, the church must rise up and go boldly into the culture in which God has placed us with light and wisdom. And if we don't, we are simply disobedient. We are simply disobedient. But I want you to notice what Paul says, or Paul doesn't say here. He doesn't say we're going to be the light and the wisdom of God when God sends you this wonderful new pastor When you get this great preacher, when you get this wonderful shepherd, because a man can't do it, one man standing behind a sacred desk can have an impact, but only when the people of that congregation say, okay, I'm in, I'm all in, I'm committed, I'm going forward. We are the light and the wisdom of God. So what does this light and wisdom incarnated in the church look like as we go forward? Having put on this new self, 
What does the light and the wisdom look like? I think there's six things in this passage of Scripture. And you could, we could divide this up in a number of ways. So I'm just going to pick six things quickly and walk through them with you. The first one is that we've got to walk, we've got to move forward collectively. Look, look at what he says in, in verse, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. One time you were darkness, not that you were in darkness, you were dark, you were darkness, now you are light. Walk as children of light. He is not saying that we have light, he's not talking about truth or theology, although those those things are important. What he is saying is that collectively, as the body of Christ, the church is the light of the world. When the church functions properly, when the church lives together, having put on all of those qualities that God calls us to put on, and we love one another, we become light. And I would add wisdom. Now, the ancients knew that light had a purifying effect. They also knew that that salt had a purifying effect. And I think that's what the apostle is speaking about here. He may even have been thinking about the words of Jesus over in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says this. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its taste, how shall it become, how shall the salt be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. You, Harvest Niagara, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, the whole point of this is that it's not simply that we live doing good works. It's that we live doing good works together so that the world can see us transformed by the power of the Spirit of God. They see the light and they see the wisdom of God in our lives. We are the called out people of God who together produce what he says in verse 9. True goodness, true righteousness, and true truth. That's the focus of the church. When he says, you are the light of the world, he's not talking to you and you and you individually. He's speaking to us personally. We don't have a plural you in the English language. But if he did, he would say, like, you guys, yous, y'all, y'all, y'all are the light of the world. You church, Harvest Niagara, you're the light of the world. So live together, walk together, move forward together, penetrate culture together. Let your light shine and penetrate the darkness and do it together. But too often we treat the church shabbily, as if the church is sort of this kind of thing that you go to once in a while if you want. Folks, we are saved for the church. There there is truth in what the Catholics say, although they say it about themselves. There's no salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church. I would just simply say there's no salvation outside the church, the, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. God saved you for the church. And yet we so often treat the church so shabbily. We dismiss it. We're involved when it's convenient We disregard it, we treat it with contempt, we criticize, we divide, we refuse to tithe and give of our time and energies. 
We walk away when the going gets tough. We bite and devour one another. It's Galatians, Paul says to the Galatians. We're going to come out of COVID, and a lot of you at home are going to be really challenged with, do I really want to get out of my pajamas on a Sunday morning? Is it really worth it to get up and drive the 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 minutes that it takes to get to the body of Christ of which I am a part? It's easy to stay isolated, to stay detached, to stay removed, and to think that church is something that you observe rather than something that you live intimately in. Lone Ranger, isolated, detached Christianity is not Christianity. We are called to the collective. We are called to the body. We are called to intimacy with one another and intimacy with Christ in that context. And we've got to prioritize the collective. If we're going to move forward together, this church needs to be together. We need to have a commitment to this body. And I know that on the edges of this congregation, we are frayed because of COVID and other things. Folks, we've got to come together. Particularly as Ross starts and Leanne and, and he start giving vision and, 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 and calling us to move forward. He can't make us do anything. We have to find that resolve by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to say, this is important and I am going to be part of it. And move forward collectively. Secondly, we've got to move forward humbly. Look at verse 11. Well, let me read verse 9 because I missed it before. He's talking about the impact of the church. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and, and true. That's, that is what we reflect to the world as we live together. And then he says this, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, at first blush, you might look at that passage and say, that's a little confusing. Don't we have the Bible? Don't we know what is pleasing to the Lord? And the answer to that is clearly yes. In many instances, we know exactly what is pleasing to the Lord. The Lord calls us to a certain morality. He calls us to a certain otherness and selflessness. He calls us very clearly and very specifically to a certain lifestyle. But there are questions and subjects that confront us both individually and as a congregation that the Bible is not specific about. It doesn't definitively answer all of our questions about certain issues. It doesn't address all of these issues. Yes, there are black and white issues. And when the Bible talks about them, we take a stand on them unequivocally and unashamedly. But we've got to remember that the will of the Lord is not always obvious. Sometimes the Christian life can be nuanced. And it can be nuanced for a number of reasons. Sometimes there are issues of conscience. Sometimes for me, something might be sinful and wrong, but for you, it may be the will of God for your life. Sometimes our theology causes differences in how we worship. Some people are, are really into the bells and the smells and the stained glass. Is that wrong? I don't think so. Some of us, like myself, like loud, exuberant worship in a more relaxed atmosphere. Who's right? 
Who should the elders have chosen to be our next senior pastor? If and when Harvest Niagara plants a church, where do we plant the church? And here's the one that I want to address again. How do we respond to the government? How do we deal with lockdowns? We try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And this takes genuine humility. Genuine humility, which is the second point. What is right in one instance may be wrong in another. What is right for one brother in one situation may be wrong for a sister in another. And it takes genuine humility and grace to be able to tease it apart and figure it out. And so I want to say this very carefully. I said it a few weeks ago and I want to say it again. One of the things that this last year has taught me is that being absolute, where the Bible is not absolute, is as sinful as disobeying what the Bible says we shouldn't do absolutely. Does that make sense? That's sort of my take on what he's saying here. Try to discern what the will of God is, because not always is it obvious and clear. Sometimes it's nuanced. Sometimes it's difficult. And in every one of those circumstances, when it's nuanced and difficult, we must choose the path of humility. And in this year, what I have seen is the path of pride and the path of judgmentalism and the path of condemnation from people on either fringe of the evangelical spectrum. And it's just simply wrong. It's wrong. Because God calls us to discern what the will of God is. And in this situation, it's not absolutely clear. Now, you may have a position where you feel strongly that it is, very obviously, and your brother or your sister may be on the other side of the issue and have a, have a position that is diametrically opposed to yours and is grounded in what verses they use. So how do you behave? Do you point fingers? Do you judge and condemn? Do you call names, as we've seen throughout Facebook for this past year? Or do you adopt a position of humility where you say, I recognize the validity of your points. I put more weight on this perspective, but I recognize that I may be wrong here. But this is how I feel. But because of humility, because I am not the fountain of all knowledge, because I've been known to be wrong in the past, I'm going to be deferential. I am not going to take a position of pride and condemnation and judgmentalism. I'm going to be humble. You know what? Humility is the, is the oil that allows the gears of any church to work. Humble churches powerfully, profoundly impact the community they're in. Churches that are full, full, full with first day with my new teeth here. <laughs> Churches that are full of proud people simply can't. 
They don't work. The church doesn't work. Pride is a, is, is, is a stench in the nostrils of God. And I've seen so much of it. People taking stands six feet above contradiction and pointing their fingers at brothers, at brothers and sisters who love the Lord and have an incredibly high view of God's word, pointing fingers on either side of either fringe, pointing fingers and dividing the church. And it's pride. So let's strive for humility. Thirdly, we've got to move forward faithfully. Look at verse 11 and following. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul is saying here, take no part in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. What are these unfruitful deeds of darkness he's talking about? He's probably talking about the, the secret mystery religions that people in Ephesus had been practicing. We don't know much about the cult of Artemis, but we do know that there were secret rites and secret religious ceremonies that these people practiced as they worshiped this, this god of Ephesus. And what Paul is saying is, have no part anymore. Leave completely your old faith, your old religion, your old lifestyle. Don't dabble in it. Don't delve into it again, even just a little bit. Don't wade around the edges of it. Come out of it completely. Come out of it and be separate completely from the lifestyle that you used to be part of. Don't try to mingle light with darkness because all you do is dim and diminish the intensity of your light. So as we walk in newness of life, as we walk forward into culture with the light of the gospel and the wisdom of God, our shared testimony as we collectively go forward together exposes the darkness. That's what John says. But the light is already penetrating the darkness. That's who the church is, who we're called to be. And to accomplish this, God calls us to a bold unwavering faithfulness have no part in your former lifestyle come out and be separate don't commingle with the world said another way sort of from a negative perspective the greatest hindrance to the church fulfilling her role in the world is nominalism compromise and worldliness when Christians try to live the Christian life with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world, we are essentially useless. And the only thing that we expose is not the darkness and the foolishness of our culture, but our own hypocrisy. A church that is light commingled with darkness simply exposes the fact that we really don't believe what we profess to believe. And reflect our hypocrisy. So what Paul does is he quotes a line, and again, this is, this is just my take on the passage. He quotes a line that is probably from an ancient hymn that was sung when people come up out of the baptismal tank. 
That's my best understanding. Because there's no, there's references in particularly in Isaiah where it talks about a Waco sleeper toward the end of Isaiah. But I think this is probably, same as in Philippians chapter 2, it is Paul using a hymn that was regularly sung at baptismal services in the ancient church. And they would say something like this, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ's light will shine on you. And what Paul is doing in using that hymn is he is reminding them of the commitment that they made when they were baptized. It's a theological understanding of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, but it is also an expression of allegiance and loyalty and dedication and devotion. When we come up out of that water, we are reflecting that we are born again, that we have been resurrected to a newness of life and that we are going to walk into culture, walk into the rest of our days in allegiance and in loyalty to Jesus. A bold, unwavering commitment, a faithfulness to the gospel and to the person of Jesus Christ. Nominal Christians with divided loyalties will never change the world. I don't don't know how to say it any other way. If we're not sold out to Jesus, if he isn't the king in our lives, that's why I prayed the way I did at the beginning of the the service, If he's not the king, if he's not sovereign, if the light doesn't penetrate every facet of our lives so that we can bring every aspect of our life, our being under his sovereignty, then we will not change our world. We need to come to that place again where we reaffirm what our baptism said, that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is my Lord. If we want to see the darkness of the Niagara Peninsula penetrated, and if we want to see the wisdom of God changing hearts and lives in this region of the world, this part of Ontario, we as a congregation need to reaffirm what we said when we were baptized, and that is, I will walk in obedience to Jesus. Fourthly, we've got to move forward purposefully. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Making the best use of the time. In other words, he says, folks, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. It is a precious commodity. It is limited Every single day that goes by, the amount of time that you have left shrinks. Don't waste it. We often squander and waste this most precious resource. We have one life. It is fleeting. It is brief. I know I'm 64. I, tell, I used to tell people I'm 50, a halfway to 100. Now I tell people I'm 64 and a halfway to 128. And they laugh. My best years are behind me. We have one life. It is fleeting. We're like a mist. We're here and then we're gone. And what we do with it counts. It matters. During 
our process of looking for a senior pastor, we interviewed, well, we, there's a big pile of resumes. We did interviews. We kind of came down to two men. One of the interviews we had with Ross, he said, and I don't remember exactly where he said it, but he said it and it made an impact on me. And I thought, okay, this, I think, is the guy. During one interview, he said something like this. He said, I don't want to waste my life. I want to make an impact for God in the years that I have left. I thought, that is so important. It is so important. People who recognize the preciousness of the commodity that is time and who accept that Jesus is Lord and are passionate for his glory will invest their lives, because that's what time is. Time is life. Life is time. will invest their lives in his cause. How do you do that unless you have a stated purpose? How do you do that unless you have a reason for getting out of bed in the morning? What prevents you from getting sucked into your smart, your dumb phone? Really, it is making us dumber and dumber. It's not a smartphone. Or watching sitcoms endlessly. Or staring at our TV. What, what prevents us from just sort of wandering through life aimlessly? It is a passion for the glory of Christ that constrains us. That orders our life. That constrains our time. Gives us focus. I'm now in that... Well, I thought I was within, in that sort of new, I was in that new stage of retirement a few months ago. And, and I, thought, I thought, oh man, it's Miller time now, man. Kick back, I've worked so hard all my life, it's time to, it's me time. And, and God and my wife very quickly rebuked me appropriately. But it's so easy when you when you sort of you've, you've invested your life and you've you've worked hard and you've saved and you and you see that you don't have a ton of time left and you think okay man where's that bucket list I want to get busy because it's all about me now and I thought and Cindy said to me one day she said, where does where does it say that in the Bible where does, where does the Bible teach that. Now, I understand that people my age and, and maybe a little bit older have less energy, uh, can't remember names that well. <laughs> there's, there's certain limitations that we have at this stage in the journey. But there is huge potential and experience, life experience. We can, we can invest in the kingdom, in younger people, in young marriages, we can mentor, we can do so much for the cause of Christ, but so often it's just kind of like me time. And I want to challenge all of you out there who are in that, who are in my age group or a little bit older, think about the potential you have and don't waste the time that God has given you. Go back and read the parable of the, the talents. God expects you to use what he's given you to invest it in his kingdom and in his cause. Fifthly, we've got to move forward dependently. Move forward dependently. He says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on and he talks for the rest of this section, down to 22, about what being filled with the Spirit looks like. And I'm going to separate them out, because I want to talk about the last one separately, because it kind of introduces the next section. But he talks about, don't get drunk with wine, 
but keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. We've got to come to that place as a congregation where we live spirit-filled lives, where we live our life empowered, enabled, buoyed up, propelled forward by the power of God's Spirit at work in our lives. This isn't sort of a Pentecostal kind of experience where the Spirit of God comes upon us. When you were born again, you received all of the Holy Spirit that you're going to get. You have been joined to the third person of the Trinity. You are in Christ. Christ is in you by the power and by the working of the Holy Spirit. What it speaks about is a yielding. What it speaks about is a bubbling up. What it speaks about is the Spirit of God welling up within us and controlling and taking over. And that can happen, never does happen in the life of a man or a woman until they come to that place of desperate need and desperate dependence. Where we come to that place where we realize, I can't do what you're calling me to do, God. I need your power made perfect in my weakness. I need your strength to be seen in my life. We need a daily filling of the Holy Spirit, and this church needs to be filled with hundreds and hundreds of people who wake up up every single morning and saying, Lord, I can't do it. I can't do what you call me to do. But I know that you can enable me by your grace, by your strength. I can live differently today for your honor and for your glory. We need him to take control. But before he does, we must come to that place where we recognize that we are inadequate We are incapable. And then when he does, what characterizes us? I think Paul here is probably describing a worship service or the interaction of the body of Christ. He's talking about what happens when spirit-filled people come together. What do they look like? Well, clearly there is a euphoria because he he contrasts getting drunk with being filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine, but keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So somehow the filling of the Holy Spirit produces a joy, a euphoria, a sense of blessing, a sense of peace, an excitement. Because then he goes on and he describes what we do. We sing and we make melody in our hearts and we talk to one another about the Psalms. And we're filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. It's, a, it's, it's something that Peter talks about. Um, glorious and joyful. The Spirit of God creates this, this, this sense of euphoria within our hearts. A sense of joy within our souls. If our church is to change the world, that's the kind of congregation we need to be. Because that's the kind of congregation that reflects who God is. When the Spirit of God is in us, we worship, we relate to one another, we do small groups in such a way, we practice for the worship team. There is a sense of God in the house. He's with us. And it's undeniable. It's, It's almost palpable. That God's with those people. God is in their midst. And that's what I want for this church. I know that's what Ross and Leanne want for this church. People who get up every single day and say, God, I can't do what you're calling me to do, but I know that by your grace and with your enabling power and strength, I can be different. And the Spirit of God just wells up within us and he gives us joy. 
and a sense of excitement, a sense of optimism, a sense of boldness and courage. And he enables us to be the congregation that he calls us to be. And then lastly and quickly, we move forward submissively. Now, that's, this is still one of those qualities that is produced within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be thankful and be submissive. Look at what he says down in that last verse, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because of our love for, our reverence for, our devotion to Jesus, we submit to one another. Because of who Jesus is, we acquiesce to one another. Because of Christ, we give ground. Because of Christ, we don't push our agenda. Because of Christ, we do right rather than having always to be right. You know, I don't know about you, but I watch the Leafs, and every once in a while, I kind of get disgusted with what happens around the net. Every time the goalie makes a save, these guys are pushing and shoving and punching and, you know, face washing and stuff. And Nobody just skates away. Everybody's pushing for his little piece of ground and dominance and control and just... You know, and I guess maybe that's hockey. By the way, I have, a, I have a personal theological conviction that there will be golf in heaven, but definitely not hockey. Hockey is, hockey came after the fall, for sure. Golf, golf might have been there before, I'm not sure. Everyone exerting his right. And that's natural for the darkness. That's natural for the darkness. But it's not who we are called to be. Those who are in the light choose to yield, are deferential, are submissive. My daughter used to have a keychain when she was 18. She's not, she's not, she's very similar to her dad, not too unlike her dad. And her keychain says this, I'm not bossy, I just have better ideas. I think a lot of us think that way. I'm not bossy, it's just that I'm right. Listen, not getting your way in church or not getting your way isn't going to derail or undermine or stop Jesus. So how do we, how do we really embrace this attitude of submissiveness and, and grace towards one another? I think out of reverence for Christ. And I'll stop with this. Look at what Jesus accomplished through his life. Look at what he accomplished without exercising power, coercion, control, strong-arming anyone. He defeated darkness. He crushed the head of the serpent. He established a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Jesus did everything that he did from an attitude and a perspective of meekness and submissiveness. And that's how he works amongst us. We don't have to be domineering, controlling, in charge, large and in charge. That doesn't need to be who we are, how we are characterized. So, if we're going to be the church that penetrates culture with light and wisdom where there is darkness and foolishness, if we're going to be a church that genuinely gets going and gets moving and going forward, we're going to be a church that prioritizes the collective, prioritizes humility, 
prioritizes faithfulness to our baptism, prioritizes purposefulness. I have one life, it will soon be over. The only thing that counts is what I do for Jesus. It'll be a church that prioritizes dependence on the Holy Spirit and his grace in my life. And there will be a church that prioritizes submissiveness to one another, honoring and submitting to one another. So let's pray that that's the kind of church that Ross and Leanne come to in September. Let's pray. Lord, we desire to be that kind of church, but you know that we are frail and you're, we are weak. It's easy for us to make commitments and make decisions to change to bring every facet of our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then we are provoked, we become discouraged, something happens, and we are right back into our old ways. Or the problem with living sacrifices is that we often try to climb off the altar after we have climbed on it. And so, Lord, we need your grace. We need your enabling power. We need the filling of your Holy Spirit right now so that we can be this kind of church, a church that prioritizes the collective, understands that we can't change the world individually. It's not a parachurch ministry. It's not a, it can't be done. It is the church. The church is the hope of the world. So give us a heart for the church, Lord. Give us a heart for humility. Give us a heart for faithfulness to live out the statement that we made when we were baptized. Help us to redeem the time. Use our lives well. Help us to walk in the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit and let us live in submission to one another because when we do, Lord, the light will shine and it will be unstoppable and it will penetrate the darkness and the truth and the wisdom of God will bring healing and hope and life to where today there is darkness and despair and death. So use this church, I pray, and prepare our hearts for the coming of Ross and Leanne and their ministry amongst us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.